In Mark chapter 5, I want to read verses 14 through 19. A familiar account. It says, And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart from the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had, the demon, had been demon-possessed was entreating Jesus that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Father in heaven, I do pray that uh, we'll understand your word this morning, that we will apply it in our lives and live it out, that we can indeed be doers of your word. Lord, give us some uh, courage because the subject this morning is a frightening one and we need your courage to do it. For I'd ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. This text is a familiar account of uh, Jesus uh, crossing the Sea of Galilee and uh, actually trying to get away from the large crowds, I think, and he went clear on the other side and there was only one person there, but it happened to be a demon-possessed person, the man we know as Legion, because he had so many demons. And you're familiar with the account of, of how Jesus had uh, cast out those demons, and now he is in his right mind, and everything's fine with him. And uh, it's a dramatic story, and it touches my heart, because here's a man who has literally wrestled with, been possessed by, uh, here's a man who, in the t context of what I was talking about last night, here's a man who was almost, almost completely destroyed by Satan, just on the verge of total destruction. And, and a man who had probably been used by Satan to destroy, to steal, to, to uh, uh, hamper other people as well. And this is all this man has known, and all of a sudden he's free from all of that. Now, I also think that not only was this man a threat to others, but he, is, he had obviously been ostracized by other people. That, I mean, nobody wants to be around this guy. One of the reasons he's out alone in the, in the caves and the tombs, etc., is not only because uh, of his threat to others, but that they didn't want him around. This is not the kind of person uh, that you want in town or you want in, uh, living at your house. He's not the relative that you invite in to stay with you. So he has that kind of life. So at the point of being free from all of that, he didn't have any place to go back to. That is, he didn't want to go back. Those people didn't care enough about him to take care of him. Uh, they wanted him gone. The only one that really ever cared about him was Jesus. And Jesus made him whole, made him well. And I think it's a natural request. Jesus, I want to go with you. Now, you're the one that got me out of that horrible situation. I want to go with you. And it seems surprising, almost shocking to us when Jesus says, no, I don't want you to go with me. And he sends the man home. I want you to think about that, applying it in your own life. And I, let's hypothetically create a little situation. Let's say that uh, Jesus is in a room like this, and he's gathered together people from all across the centuries, 
all of his faithful servants, and he is assigning tasks to different people. He is saying, I'm giving you your, your job, your ministry, your, uh, where I want you to serve. And so we're sort of in a line. It's kind of an exciting time because we're in a line. And sooner or later, we know it's going to be our turn. We're going to be up front, and Jesus is going to be assigning the task to us, whatever it is he wants us to do. Now, there are people in front of us in line, and so we're listening to what their assignments are. And, for instance, uh, perhaps there's a, um, perhaps there's a Paul comes up. And uh, Paul comes up, and uh, he's in line, and, and Jesus said, well, Paul, he says, uh, Paul, I have a lot of work for you. I, I, want you to, uh, I want you to be a church planner. I need you to go out through Asia Minor and go into Europe, and we need you to go into, uh, into uh, Greece, into Macedonia, and Achaia, and I want you to begin churches. But also, Paul, uh, you got to, obviously, if you're a church planner, you've got to be an evangelist. And so, Paul, I'm going to give you this message to the Gentiles that uh, they'll hear and, uh, and uh, they'll come to me. And, uh, Paul, you're going to have to be a, a theologian because these are new churches and they, they don't understand the Christian faith, and you're going to have to explain it. In fact, Paul, you're going to be a writer. You're going to have to write some books. And so here's a long assignment, and Paul, I'm sure, you know, would have taken that and said, Lord, thank you, you know, I'll, I'm going to get right on it. And he goes out the door with his assignment in hand. And then, you know, perhaps there are others. Perhaps, you know, John the Apostle is there in line, and he comes up, and, and, and Jesus says, well, John, you know, I, um, you were so close, and you listened so intently. You, you were just, more than anybody else, able to get a sense of my heart's desire uh, when I was here on earth. So, John, what I need you to do is write down that heart's desire, and you're going to have to write uh, a book. In fact, John, your book's going to be successful. You can have several sequels, you know. You can have First John, Second John, Third John. And uh, you'll go through some tough times, but uh, you're going to write some important things for me. And John takes his assignment and says, man, that's, that's what I'm going to do for the Lord. And then, you know, if you can imagine that same process as, it, as it's going through history. Maybe you have there are other people ahead of you in line. Maybe there's Martin Luther. You know, he comes up and Jesus says, well, Martin, he says, you know, you got a big task for you. I mean, uh, I need you to reform the church. You know, and you're going to have to start out by, you know, you're going to have to translate the Bible uh, from, from the Latin. You're going to have to go back to the Greek and Hebrew text, and you're going to have to translate it into common German so everyone can read it in your country. You're going to have to stand up against the organized faith of the day where they're wrong, and uh, it can cost you a lot in the way of persecution, but you're going to have to do this. And he assigns Martin Luther his task, and Luther takes his task, and he goes on out. You know, you're standing in line, you're hearing this, you're saying, man, I'm in the right line. Uh, this is great. And uh, then someone else comes along. Let's say, uh, let's say uh, D.L. Moody comes along. And he's out there and he says, Mr. Moody says, uh, he's there and, and uh, the Lord says, uh, Moody, I, I got some evangelistic work for you to do in the United States and uh, in Great Britain. And uh, you're going to have to preach and you're going to have to call people to repentance. And, uh, uh, but I got a great work and there, there are all these meetings lined up and uh, all of this uh, legacy that you're going to leave, and, and uh, here's what you need to do. And so he gets an assignment, and he goes on off and, and uh, begins that work. And I mentioned a couple of names last night, so let's plug them in there too. Let's just say uh, Billy Graham's up ahead of you there. And uh, the Lord says, Billy says, uh, you know, we've got some great crusades. You're, gonna, you're going to uh, be that person who, who, who initiates uh, worldwide crusades, not just in person, but through the media, through radio, through television. Um, 
Um, you're going to bring people to Christ. Now, that's your job. I don't, you don't need to be president of the United States. And you don't need uh, to do any other things, but you need to bring people to Christ. And he gets his assignment. He goes on off. Maybe Mother Teresa's there. And uh, Jesus must have smiled deeply and uh, said, uh, Mother Teresa, it's, a, it's not an easy task that I send you to. But there are people dying in the streets um, with no one, no one to fight for them uh, as Satan destroys their life. And I'm going to send you there to those dirty, muddy, filthy, infested streets to work with those dying poor people. She takes her assignment. It's a noble cause. She goes out. And then you and I are in line. Let's say I'm the next one. And so I get in line finally. And he looks down and he sees me and he says, Now, uh, what was your name? And I say, uh, Bly. And he sort of looks through his notes and says, Oh, yeah, Bly. Yeah, okay, Bly, go home. Wait, 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 wait a minute. What did you say? He said, Go home. I don't want to go home. I've been standing in line for centuries here. I've been waiting for my assignment. Well, that's your assignment, Bly. Go home. Boy, I mean, disappointing. I don't have any big list. I don't have any great ta uh, tasks to do. I don't have any reforming of the church. I don't have any great worldwide ministry. Just go home. Now you start to get a sense of the feeling for this man in this passage. He's ready. Lord, here am I. Send me. Jesus said, go home. What did he say? Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done and how he has had mercy on you. A lot of, uh, there, are, there are many times where you and I are ready. We get inspired by um, the praise and the worship. We get inspired by our devotions with God. We get inspired by the preaching and the teaching of the Word. We get inspired by people's testimony. We are ready to dedicate ourselves to good, big, huge, worldwide tasks. And Jesus says, go home to your people and tell them what I've done. What I want to talk about this morning is how to lead your loved ones to Christ. And you know, I think the reason we are disappointed when Jesus tells us to go home is not merely because it seems insignificant, but because in our heart we know it's a more difficult task. There's nothing harder than going home and witnessing to those you love and those around you. I want to tell you right now, I have, uh, I have relatives and loved ones that don't know the Lord. And uh, sometimes, I, uh, uh, among the many things I get invited to do, I get invited to travel around the country at different times and do evangelistic services. Fast, last summer we were in... Uh, Ohio doing tent meetings. First time I ever did tent revival meetings. Uh, United Methodist Church in Ohio sponsored tent revival meetings. And it was a great time. I loved it. It was fun to, to get out there and get in a tent and preach for conversion and see people come forward and be saved. But I want to say that's easier 
for me to do than talking to my unsaved relatives. I'll go to Ohio anytime and talk to strangers because it's tough to talk to those you love. How do you reach the ones you love for Christ? I want us to look at a few principles this morning that can help us be more effective in doing that job. It's a burden of our heart, and yet we avoid it because it's tough. We don't want to go home. We want to go do something else, some other place. And Jesus tells each one of us at times in our life, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done. So let me start out by giving some what I want to call uh, indispensable qualities for reaching those you love. Here's the first. You and I need to go home and be a servant. A servant. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. If you and I want to reach those people at home, whether they be in our very house or those loved ones that are close to us, no matter where they live, if we want to reach our people, we have to go home and be a servant. Now, a servant does not necessarily mean doing everything for everybody. But it does mean going home and having the attitude that we are a servant of the Lord. And we take our orders from Him, and we do the things that we do in life in order to please Him. I suppose you're at home uh, sometime, gals, this week and uh, this next week, and, and you're at home, and uh, a person comes to your door, and they introduce themselves. You notice they're, they're a little bit different. They're uh, dressed in bright white and uh, sort of a brilliance about them and uh, this little glow behind their head. And uh, they're there, and they say to you, Oh, I'm a servant of the Lord. The Lord sent me, and I'm serving the Lord. He sent me by to do your dishes. Now, now you say to yourself, good timing, Lord. I've, I've been gone for a week, and, uh, and I just got back, and everything's a mess, and uh, we got dishes to do. And, and so you invite that person. What kind of job would you think they would do? What would a servant of the Lord, what kind of job would they do with the dishes? You know, would you have to look at them and say, uh, well, maybe, maybe you shouldn't come by next time. <laughs> no, if this is a person sent from God directly from the throne room, you would expect your dishes to be done better than they had ever been done. You look at that and you say, wow, I have never seen anything like this before. That's, that's the way a servant of the Lord would operate. So when I say you and I need to go home and be a servant, what I mean is we need to go home and do those tasks that God has given us to do as a servant of the Lord should do them. Whether the tasks are uh, menial tasks or uh, whether those tasks are uh, mental tasks or whether the tasks are spiritual tasks, whatever it is that we do in relationship to our loved one from uh, cleaning the house to repairing the car to whatever it is, we need to do that with that attitude of being a servant. If we are serious about reaching for Christ, our loved ones, we're going to go home and be a servant. Here's the second thing. We need to go home and be consistent. Go home and be consistent. 
It says in uh, John 1.47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And I think that means consistency. I think what it means literally is uh, the things that came out of Nathaniel's mouth were the exact same things that were in his head. That is, it was, he was consistent. And if we're going to have impact at home, we're going to have to be consistent. I think about a uh, fellow by the name of Wayne who was choir director, youth choir director, marvelous youth choir of about 65 or 70 uh, people in high school and early college age. And I used to uh, like going to their town and listening to the uh, performances that uh, they put on and how exciting it was and the music. It was so vital and the testimonies of the young people. I like youth choirs and listening to youth choirs. And, and um, it was exciting to see the tours that they would take and the places they were able to sing and the impact of the ministry that they had on other young people. This was Wayne's life. It was a volunteer position, but uh, this was his life. The sad part about Wayne's story is that his daughter Sharon's in Alaska. Uh, after being married several times, living with some guy. His son Scott is in Las Vegas running an adult bookstore. Both children renounce their early faith and complain about their father never having any time for them, never being consistent with his Christianity at home, that he could always help those other kids, but he couldn't help his own. If we're going to have any kind of power to reach those that we love, we have to go home and be consistent. Our best holiness is the holiness we practice there at home. Here's the third quality to reach those you love. You have to go home and be truthful. Go home and be truthful. The scriptures say in Ephesians 4.25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Speak truth. We have to go home and be truthful. And I mean be truthful about our faith. I remember one time I was, uh, I was sharing an example of uh, in a sermon, I was sharing an example of uh, how things didn't always work out in, in uh, the way I had planned them to. And this was a case when Janet and I, we'd been in the ministry, pastoral ministry, two or three years. And some couples in our church that I was serving uh, came to me and said, uh, we'd like to have a kind of a marriage uh, class, uh, home Bible study, just talking about marriage and husband and wife relationships and things. There's several of us couples that would like this kind of class. Jan and I thought that was a good idea and we should start something like that. So we, we kind of organized some curriculum and planned it out over several weeks. And, and we got our home ready and we were going to have the Bible study there at our home and Jan fixed the refreshments. And, and uh, of course, I had put uh, notices in the bulletin and announced it from the pulpit because I figured there were probably more than just these two or three couples that would be interested in this program. So we had it on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. And at 7 o'clock Tuesday night, no one showed up. I mean, not the two or three couples that asked us, and no one else. I mean, that was the shortest program I ever organized in my life. <laughs> we didn't even have one meeting. They weren't there. And that had happened uh, several years before. And so during the sermon later on, it, uh, I was using that for example of things that we planned don't always take place like we thought. I got home that day after the, the sermon, and my son Michael was there, and he said, Dad, 
He said, I never heard you talk about that before. And I said, oh yeah, those kind of things happen. He said, I thought everything you did always worked. <laughs> I got to thinking, what have I been telling this kid? I haven't been very honest at home about my faith if he thought everything I ever tried for the Lord worked and succeeded. You see, we have to go home and be honest. There are sometimes, let me give you an example that, uh, that we all relate to. There are sometimes when you've got little children at home, you are hesitant to pray for their uh, healing, aren't you? Because you're afraid, what if the Lord doesn't heal? And I've told this little child and I've asked him. And uh, I'm kind of hesitant about this. Or maybe it's your own healing. Maybe you're sick and uh, your little child comes up to you as they will because you've prayed for them. And they say, well, mommy, let's pray that the Lord will heal you. And you, you kind of hesitate because you say, well, I, you know, I, I want them to think God does everything we ask him to do. But you see, we've got to go home and be truthful. There are some times that we pray for God to do certain things and he's smarter than we are. He doesn't give us that answer. And we have to go home and be truthful about our faith. Here's another characteristic. We need to go home and be gentle. Be gentle. The scriptures say in 1 Peter 3, 4, let the adornment, your adornment be a hidden person of the heart with imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of the Lord. I remember one time a lady named Margaret came and saw me and she said... Uh, she said, I can't do anything with my teenage kids, and, uh, and uh, they're just, uh, they, they don't obey, and they, they sneak out of the house, and they don't do their studies, and, uh, and uh, they don't want to come to church. And, and she said, I think that they really need to go to summer camp, that it would really have an impact on them. And she said, uh, you'll have to come out and talk them into it, though. And I'm trying to think, how do you talk high schoolers into going to camp if they don't want to go to camp? Especially the preacher coming out to talk to them. But I went out to uh, Margaret's house and uh, went to visit with the kids. When I got to her house, uh, Margaret was kind of putting around in the house. And, uh, of course, the kids were there someplace. She had told them they had to be there. The preacher was coming to talk to them. Oh. And... Uh, but they were not behaving themselves. You know, the stereo was on real loud, and the music was uh, purposely uh, pretty rank kind of music. And uh, Margaret was there in the living room putting around. She was watering her plants when I came in. And I found out, I didn't know this, but she's one of the ladies that talks to her plants. And she was watering plants. And while I'm standing there, and she's trying to gather her kids, she's watering plants. And she's saying, oh, you sweet little thing. How are you today, honey? I'm, uh, Mama's going to bring you a drink today. And she's watering this plant. And she's petting this plant. And she turns around and says, Bruce, you get in here and sit down. The preacher's here. How are you, this little plant? You're so sweet. I'm thinking, this lady knows how to treat her plants, but she doesn't know how to treat her kids. She doesn't know how to be gentle. And there's not going to be much impact. And it's going to be difficult to reach them for Christ unless you can go home and be gentle. Being gentle means knowing the right time to be angry and knowing the wrong time to be angry. And if we're going to have any impact on those we love, we're going to have to go home and be gentle.
Here's another characteristic. I think we need to go home and be specific. Be specific. In that passage in Mark chapter 5, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. What Jesus is saying is go home and tell them exactly what happened to you and what I've been doing. We have to be specific if we're going to reach our loved ones. I want to remind you something you probably already knew, but I want to remind you that no one was ever saved without hearing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, all of these other characteristics that I'm going to give you and I have given you are helpful to prepare a relationship so they can hear the gospel, but they're not going to be saved unless they hear. Living a perfect life, if you could do it, would not convert any of your family members. Jesus lived a perfect life, and it didn't convert any of his family members before he began to proclaim the gospel. We have to, at some time, be specific and let them hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. When uh, Russell, our oldest son, was seven, I was uh, still on the ranch, and, and, uh, and I wasn't, uh, in fact, I'd only been a Christian a uh, year or two, and I didn't have any theological background or Bible school training, and uh, in fact, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so I didn't even have Sunday school over the years for uh, a background. I didn't know a lot about the Lord at the time, but I did know the Lord. And I was working on the ranch one day, and Russell went out with me, and I was loading the truck up. And uh, as I was loading the truck, uh, Russ was there, and we were kidding around, playing and joking. And, and I said, uh, well, if you don't straighten up, uh, I was kidding him, and I said, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to send you back where you came from. And being a, an astute seven-year-old, he said, well, you're going to send me back in mother's tummy? And... Uh, I said, you know, that's kind of a funny, funny question. I said, you know, uh, somebody said that to Jesus once. And Nicodemus was there, and he was a teacher and a smart man, but Jesus said you had to be born again, and he said, how, how can that be? I have to go back to my mother's womb, my mother's tongue. And so I was kidding with uh, Russ a little bit, and he looked at me and said, Dad, he said, uh, I've never been born again. Now, at that point, I probably had a lot of options that I could have said, you know, uh, I could have said, well, you're only seven years old and, and uh, don't worry about it. When you're older and you understand things, that'll be fine. I didn't say that, but uh, I probably could have. Or I could have said, well, no, uh, you probably haven't been born again. And, you know, when we get home, you ought to talk to your mother about it. <laughs> or I could have said, uh, Russell, you're, you're, you know, uh, that's a good question to ask your Sunday school teacher. I'm sure they'd like to tell you about that, or the preacher. What I said to him was, no, Russ, you haven't been born again. Would you like to be? And he said, yeah, I would. And so we spent uh, several minutes, I don't know if it's 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, me, uh, being a fairly new Christian, trying to explain to a 7-year-old what it meant to be born again. What does it mean to accept Christ? And uh, frankly, after being a Christian only a short length of time, I probably was speaking in uh, seven-year-old language. That's as deep a theology as I had, and the Lord probably knew that. But I told him what I knew, what I knew about accepting the Lord and, and receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. When I got through, I said, now, do you understand what I'm saying? He said, yeah. 
I said, well, would you like to accept Christ now? Yeah. And he and I both remember being out behind that barn with some rusty old farm implements there, kneeling down in the dirt when he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And when I think back on that, I realize that was probably one of the two or three most important sermons I ever preached in my life. More important than that crusade in Ohio last summer. More important than a lot of other meetings. It wasn't a very complicated sermon. I would have hated now to hear what I told him. It probably wasn't very clear, but it was enough for the Lord to work through it. But I had to be specific. The point came in the relationship when he said, Dad, I haven't been born again, and I had to say, No, you haven't. Would you like to be? And explain what the gospel is the best I could. You and I have to go home and be specific sometime because no one was ever saved without hearing the gospel. Number six, we need to go home and be realistic if we're going to have impact. Be realistic. The Scriptures say in uh, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. But I would like to remind you and me that anything less than that is not salvation. And part of the problem with reaching those we love is that we do not evaluate our loved ones with the same standards that we, that we evaluate other people. We look at other people, and if they haven't confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if they don't believe in their heart, God raised Him from the dead, we look at other people and we say, they're not born again yet. They're not saved. They aren't Christians. But we have a hard time applying that same standard with our own family. That We, we love our family so much, we just don't want to think of them as being unsaved or lost. And so we kind of water down their condition a little bit. We, we don't say our husband's an alcoholic. We say, well, he's been under a lot of pressure lately. We, we don't say Junior's out of control and totally rebellious. We say Junior's just feeling his oats. We don't say mom is severely depressed and can't get out of it. We say that she's just been tired a lot lately. You see, we have to go home and be realistic. We have to look at them carefully. And that doesn't mean we're offensive. That doesn't mean we, uh, we, we, we go home and uh, purposely attack their position. But it means in our own eyes, we see them for who they really are. I did a funeral for a young man about 20 years old. His name was William Tucker. And, uh, and uh, it's always difficult doing funerals for people at that age or younger, and, and of course this was a difficult time, and I visited with his mother, whom I hadn't known before I did the funeral, but I began to visit with her, and I began to realize that she had a Christian faith, and, uh, and so I asked her about her son and about his faith, because this was before I was going to do the service, I wanted to know what I could say about Billy, as she called him, and she began to share with me how much she loved her son. And uh, she began to share with me about uh, what a good boy he had been, and, and he hadn't caused her much trouble at all. And so then I asked him, her about his faith. I said, well, what, kind of, what about his faith? Well, she said, you know, uh, we, we never talked about our own personal faith too much, she said, but I'm just sure he was a believer. I mean, he, there was this television preacher that he liked to watch on Sundays, and, and he often watched this man, and... and uh, 
um, he had a Bible that he got when he was young, and it was there in his room someplace. She just knew it was. And as I began to share with this lady and understand, she had never really seen him as being an unsaved person. So the faith had never been shared. She had really no idea of his spiritual condition. He had grown up and spent 20 years in her home, but she wasn't sure. Now, she said she was sure because in a time of stress, we want desperately to be sure. We have to be realistic. If you're going to reach your loved ones, you have to see them for who they really are. Now, again, that doesn't mean put them down. That doesn't mean attack the position. That just means you have an, a realistic view of the mission field God sent you home to reach. Here's another characteristic. I think we need to go home and be joyful. You know, Psalm 51, 12, uh, David is praying. He says, Restore to me the joy of thy, of thy salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. The joy of God's salvation. If we're going to reach anyone around us, there has to be a lot of joy in our life and in our Christian faith. A sincere joy. Uh, the kind of joy David is talking about, of course, is that kind of joy when we first came to Christ and it first dawned on us that we were forgiven and it first dawned on us that we have now uh, secured our place in eternity with God forever. Uh, the joy of... Uh, of realizing uh, those sins and those failures in our life will not be held against us by God. All of that deep spiritual joy that we experienced, David says, restore that. And if he's praying for that, I believe God can do that. That is, restore us, that we can live and we can dwell in, in that kind of joy. And this is not just a, a false happiness, not just a, um, a bubbly, bouncy, uh, unrealistic worldview but this is that deep spiritual joy that sets each day in fellowship with God, expecting good things from Him. And if we don't have that kind of joy, we're not going to reach those loved ones around us. I remember the first time we took Aaron to the dentist. Um, uh, you know, you uh, try to prepare your child for this really fun time they're going to have. And uh, how that it's a, a nice place to go and there are pictures of balloons and clowns painted on the wall, and there are puzzles and games to play and all of these kind of things. And uh, he's, he was looking forward to the dentist. And uh, he got to the dentist's office, and it was just like we said, well, there were cartoons on the TV monitor, and there were all of these things in this children's dentist's office. He, he loved it. Until a little kid came out screaming, with tears coming down the face. And he took a look at that little kid, and all the rest of that didn't matter. He just knew, I do not want to go in the room where they do that to little kids. <laughs> I think about a friend named Debbie. She's been trying to reach her husband, for Frank, for years. Uh, she wants uh, him so much to come to the Lord, to come to church with her and come to the Lord. But Debbie's what I call, you know, one of those church hoppers. <laughs> In five years, she's gone to about six churches. Two of the churches have split. One of the churches closed because there was so much bickering that had gone on. And she comes home every Sunday and tells Frank about those horrible things that are happening at church. And then she wonders why he doesn't want to go, why he's not interested in the Lord. But there's no joy there. 
If we're going to reach those around us, we have to go home and be joyful. Then we need to go home and be prayerful. Be prayerful. Like Job, we need to pray for those that we love. You know uh, how Job prayed for his children in that first chapter? And it says that, uh, and it came about in the days of feasting had been completed their cycle, that Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And he's talking about his family. And Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually, continually prayed for his loved ones. Perhaps they were doing things he wasn't even aware of that would be offensive to God. So Job prayed for them. There's no place in Scripture that says we stop praying for our family and our loved ones. We pray for their salvation. We pray for the fulfilling of their ministry. We pray for their faithfulness. We continue to pray for them. In 1937, Janet's grandmother uh, felt led of the Lord to pray that one of her children would go into full-time Christian service. And uh, so she began praying day after day and day after day. Grandma Chester prayed that one of her children would go into full-time service. And the 30s went by, and none of them did. But she kept praying. And the 40s went by, and none of them did. But she kept praying. And the 50s went by, none of them went into ministry, but Grandma Chester kept praying. And the 60s rolled around, and they were coming to a conclusion when Janet and I stopped by one time. And I shared with her that God uh, was calling us into ministry. My tears rolled down her face. I've been praying for a long time. Since 1937, I've been praying one of my family would go into ministry. And she said, you're the answer to my prayers. She never told us that. We had no idea that she'd been praying about that. She never told anybody. She'd just been praying. And uh, when I think about how did I ever get into ministry, somehow it ties in with Grandma Chester's prayers because she kept praying. Go home and be prayerful. Go home and be persistent in those prayers. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, Ephesians 6.18 says, and with this in view, be on the alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints. Be persistent in those prayers for others' conversions. I told you the first part of a little story last night. I want to tell you the second part. Maybe this is kind of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story kind of thing. I told you about a time that I was called into a rest home and prayed and talked to an old man about accepting Christ. And then I felt like Satan just blinded him right at the point of conversion. And, and uh, time after time, I would tell him how to accept Christ. I told him at least three times. I spent at least two hours with the man, and every time I asked him, do you want to accept the Lord, he would begin to curse me again. And after a while, I, I didn't know if there's anything left to do. I had some prayer, and I left. And again, I, I didn't know the man. I didn't know the family. They had picked my name literally out of a phone book of pastors, and, and that's why I was there at the rest home. It was about... Four days later, I got a call from the same lady who had called me in the first place. And she called me. It was the, the man's brother, uh, the man's uh, sister. And the lady called me and said uh, that her brother had died. And would I do the service? And my first reaction, you know, I, I knew I was going to do the service. But my first reaction is, well, what could I possibly say? All I can say is this man had three opportunities to accept the Lord and he turned them all down. I mean, 
I didn't know what I was going to say. But she went on. She said, you know, I've got to tell you what happened after you were there. She said, uh, I went to see my brother the next day after you had been there. And uh, he had had a rough night again. He had been crying out in the night, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. And the nurses called me and I went in the next morning. And the minute I walked in the door, my brother, he was in a wheelchair there beside of his bed. And he looked up at me and he said, Sis, should I do what that preacher told me to do? And she said, I don't know what you had told him to do. I didn't know when I walked in, but I just, I felt anything he did was going to be good. And I, I said, yes, you should do it. And she said, uh, he just dropped his head and began to cry and said, Lord Jesus, come into my life. She said, for three days, he just slept like a baby. There wasn't any tossing, no turning, no crying out in the night. He passed away. He said, would, she said, would you do the service? I said, yeah like to do that service. She said, I've been praying for him for 37 years. She said, I've been a Christian for, for ages. And she said, uh, of all my brothers and sisters, he was the one that I would have never thought ever could, would, ever consider accepting Christ. And she said, I'm glad I didn't give up. And I said, I'm glad you didn't either. We have to go home and pray. We have to go home and pray with persistence. You and I have some loved ones that we've been praying for so long, we just, we're tired of praying for them. We feel like just uh, putting down a recording of the prayer and playing it every day. I mean, because, I mean, my, that's, we're just saying the same old thing. But if we're going to have any impact, we're going to go home and be persistent. Here's the last thing. We need to go home and be at peace. Jesus said, my peace, I leave with you. Paul said in Romans 14, 19, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. I think having peace in your home witnessing means you'll never be in an unreasonable hurry in that witnessing process. I think being at peace means that you're never going to be destroyed by failure. I think mean, being at peace means that you're never going to forget the eternal view of life, and always be concerned about those loved ones' soul. Being at peace. How strong a witness is peace in a person's life? I want you to look at a, at a passage of Scripture. Well, let me just read you uh, the verse and, and, and recount to you that particular, uh, that particular scene. You remember when... Uh, Paul was still called Saul. And when we first see him in Scripture, it comes about, what, about Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, just as it begins. And what is he doing? Well, Saul is there standing around in the crowd. In fact, he says in, uh, in Acts chapter uh, 22, verse 20, uh, later in life, Paul looks back and he says, When the blood of thy witness Stephen was being shed, I was also standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. So Paul himself admits that Stephen, when Stephen was being stoned, he was right there saying, kill him, kill him, he deserves it. But when I see Stephen, I see a man uh, of peace in a time of conflict. You know that peace can only happen in conflict. And if we're going to go home and be at peace, we're going to go home to conflict and demonstrate Christ's peace. And Stephen demonstrated that kind of peace. Uh, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he looked up and said, I see, you know, Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. 
And I believe it's the peace of Stephen that had a dramatic impact on the conversion of Paul. Now later on, Jesus is going to meet Paul on that road to Damascus. But I think Paul has had a little hint of what the Christian life is really like before he ever got on that road to Damascus. And he saw it through the peace of Stephen. You and I need to go home and be at peace. It is a great and glorious assignment to be sent home and to tell those at home what God has done for you. There is one man who did a good job of that, I think, as good a job as anybody ever, and he is truly one of my heroes of Scripture. If you were to say, Bly, who are your heroes of Scripture? Well, Janet knows I would have to go to Joshua in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, other than the obvious heroes that everyone would select, my hero is Cornelius, a Roman soldier, a Gentile. And in uh, Acts chapter 10, it talks about that scene. And you remember the account of Cornelius, how uh, that uh, he had this vision that he should send for this man named Simon Peter to come and uh, to tell him about God. And so he does that. And uh, you know the story about Peter and how Peter didn't want to go to Gentile's house, but the Lord showed him that all people were clean and that he should do this. And, and you're familiar with that. Well, in uh, Acts chapter uh, 10, in talking about that, in verse 24, it says, and it's talking about when Peter finally got there, it says, In the following day, Peter entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. I think about Cornelius, home witnessing. I mean, everyone who meant anything to Cornelius was there. All the relatives, now not all of his relatives, Cornelius is the head of a, uh, of a Roman uh, uh, legion of soldiers. Um, he's probably from Italy or some other place, and he's stationed there, but he was able to bring a lot of his family along. So all the relatives around, Cornelius talked them into coming over to his house. <laughs> I don't know what he said to him. I... Come on over, a preacher's coming. You know, and why did they show up if that's what he said? They showed up because he had prepared all these other things. He had been consistent. He had been truthful. He had been uh, gentle. He had been a servant. He had all these other characteristics. So when he said to his relatives, come on over, they said, hey, this is Cornelius. If he needs us, we're there. He said to his friends, it says all of his close friends were there too. His close friends, his good friends. Cornelius said, listen, you know, I know you're busy. I know you've got other things. I know you've got to work today. I, I know you're going to be, you know, uh, uh, tied up and you've got relatives visiting with you. I need you to be in my house. It's important. Can you be here? And they're there. So when Peter gets there, the room is crammed. All the people that are dear to Cornelius are there. And Peter begins to preach. Notice in verse 44, And while Peter was still speaking, these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. This is a great revival. Everyone in the room. See, when I read all, I, I always believe that means all. Everyone in the room was converted. Every relative that came over to Cornelius' house was converted. Every close friend accepted the Lord. Boy, this is a guy who went home and, and reached those at home. He's a model for me. Somehow he had lived his life in such a way that when he said, you come and listen, they came and they listened. 
And it was not just alone Peter's persuasive preaching that converted them, but it was that tender softening up that Cornelius' life had been to that point that brought him there too. I think we can do that same sort of thing. When Jesus tells us from time to time, go home. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room know how tough it is, Lord, to, to reach some of those we love so much. That's why, Lord, we've been praying for years that uh, somebody else would reach them. Because uh, we know it's tough for us to do, and we keep thinking maybe somebody else it would be easier. And yet, Lord, uh, they're related to us. <laughs> they're our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones. And that's not by accident. And, uh, Lord, our heart's desire on a day like today, when we see your beauty in the world and, and we see your beauty in the spiritual lives of our brothers and sisters that are here worshiping, praising you. And, Lord, we look around and there's some people missing in this crowd. And some of them are our loved ones. And we think, what a joy, what a delight it would be if, if, if my mom and my dad were here or my brother or my sister or my son or my daughter or, or maybe a husband or a wife. Or, or that neighbor or my good friend for years, but they don't know you. They've never stood in the midst of a congregation and, and joined in praise and worship. And they won't stand there in eternity unless they change. And Father, we, we want that for them, but we don't always know what to do and what to say, and we're afraid. So, Lord, it's all right this morning if you tell us to go home. We're ready for it now. And uh, just go with us and give us your strength and your courage. And we're going to do it. We're going to be at peace. And we're going to be persistent. And we're going to be truthful. And we're going to employ all those other qualities so that they might know you too. Because, Father, we aren't any better than they are. And somebody, somebody somewhere brought the gospel to us. We want to continue that legacy to them. Thank you, Father, for those mission fields that we have at home too. We rejoice in the big things you've allowed us to do. We rejoice in those at home that you've sent us to reach. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.